0: Philippians chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 11. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. In verse 5, the Apostle Paul gives us this exhortation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you. Conform your mind to the mind of Christ, in other words. Think the way Christ thought. Let this mind be in you. Paul is giving this exhortation now for a very definite reason. He recognizes that if the Christians at Philippi are going to heed his previous exhortations, which include being like-minded, having the same love, do nothing through strife or vainglory, But in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than themselves. If these things are going to happen, then the believers at Philippi would need to be empowered by having yet something else, namely the mind of Christ. These things you see that I just elaborated on, same love, nothing through strife or vain glory, lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than themselves, those things don't come naturally. Our sinful natures have an inherent propensity to be very self-serving. Our pride constantly tempts us to pursue vainglory, and in the pursuit of our own interests, we find ourselves easily provoked to strife. That word strife is an interesting word. One Greek lexicon says of this word that it means partisanship, fractiousness, then it goes on to make this remark. This word is found before New Testament times only in Aristotle, where it denotes a self seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Wow, what a modern day term to be using, huh? Strife. Wherever there is pride and competing self interests, there will undoubtedly also, be strife. So, Paul is calling on the Christians in Philippi to overcome these things and let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, vainglory being equated to empty pride. Verse 5, as I say, shows that Paul recognizes the difficulty of the task, it's a challenge. So in order to give the Philippians what they would need to pursue the task of being unified and humble and esteeming others better than themselves, Paul gives them something to enable them to overcome strife and vainglory and to obtain humility and service to others. He gives them this exhortation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word mind here, I think, encompasses more than the mind we commonly think of. Or in other words, it encompasses more than just that organ in your head through which you think with, though it certainly would include that. But the term mind also speaks with reference to our attitude or our demeanor. Some English versions translate it this way, having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. They choose to translate the word attitude instead of mind. And I think the term mind encompasses all of that. Have the right attitude. Paul is saying, in effect, have you ever as a parent had to deal with bad attitudes in your children? This is one of those areas in which parents set very high standards for what they think their children can instantly achieve. They demonstrate this when they say to their children, I don't like your attitude. You need to change it. And change it right now. What's overlooked in such cases is that attitudes are not changed by a simple snap of the fingers. Attitudes have to be cultivated or developed. Children need to be trained to develop right attitudes. The same thing you could say holds true in the spiritual realm. If we as Christians are going to have right attitudes, then those attitudes have to be cultivated. If we, therefore, are going to have the mind of Christ, then that mind or that attitude will only be obtained as we pursue Christ, as we behold the way He thought, and the way He spoke, and the way He served, and the way He identified with men and the way he obeyed his Father, as we see him in these various capacities, that will go a long way in contributing to, to us gaining his mind. Now what I want to focus on this morning is the enabling power that the mind of Christ imparts to the believer. We see in these verses in Philippians, don't we, one of the richest portions of the Bible pertaining to Christ. This, this runs right alongside Hebrews 1 that we read earlier, and the matter of the deity of Christ. These verses minister sublime truths to us about the divinity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ and the condescension of Christ, and the impressive obedience of Christ, which was obedience that took him all the way to the point of death, and even the death of Calvary's cross. These verses further convey to us the reward that Christ earned as a result of that obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. They point us to his exaltation and to that time to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a sense in which over the span of these few verses, Paul is reaching back in time. He's taking us forward in time to the very end and in the process describing to us the divinity of Christ. And oh, how I love to read those words of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. That's something you know that you do well to contemplate, especially when you hear the way Christ's name is blasphemed today. Those blasphemers are going to bow before that name one day. And my, how their words are going to plague them then and forever. These verses, along with the verses we read earlier in Hebrews 1, give us a Condensed but somewhat comprehensive view of Christ. You could say these are theological verses, for they're teaching us about Christ. Maybe we would more accurately call them Christological verses. But the thing I want you to see and appreciate from these verses this morning is that they serve a very and definite practical purpose. Paul is not simply injecting this rich section on Christ in order to provide data for later systematic theology volumes that would be written. No, Paul has a very practical aim in view when he makes these statements about Christ. He wants the Philippians to have the mind of Christ. Everything that's given to us, therefore, from verses 6 through 11, ought to be approached from that perspective. And the verses should be thought upon with this question in view. What does this statement of Christ being in the form of God and thinking it not robbery to be equal with God what should that statement contribute to me having the mind of Christ? What does the statement that he made himself of no reputation contribute to my having the mind of Christ? And what do Paul's statements about Christ's humiliation and exaltation contribute to the believer having the mind of Christ? We know, don't we, that we need the mind of Christ. We need it in order to be like-minded. We need it in order to overcome strife and vainglory. We need it in order to esteem others better than ourselves. We need it, in other words, because of its enabling power. Let's consider, then, these glorious statements about Christ as they relate to the mind of Christ... And let's look at these statements with a definite aim in view, that aim being that you and I may draw the enabling power that we need from having the mind of Christ. That's what I want to think on then in the remaining moments, the enabling power of the mind of Christ. And the question I want to ask and then endeavor to answer is simply this. What does the mind of Christ enable us to do? What does the mind of Christ enable us to do? Well, consider with me first of all the mind of Christ will enable us to think accurately about ourselves. The mind of Christ will enable us to think accurately, truly, correctly about ourselves. And oh, how we need the mind of Christ for that very reason. We are so prone to view ourselves through rose-colored glasses and how we need to think accurately about ourselves. Verse 6 gives us a statement about how Christ thought of himself. Notice that he, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery, to be equal with God. We certainly have in this statement a strong and clear affirmation of Christ's deity that comes from Christ himself. He's the one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, every now and again, it seems like this routinely happens. You might go through a period of time where this action I now have in mind You see it aside, but uh, inevitably it it surfaces again, uh, which is a new notion which usually amounts to nothing more than an old heresy with renewed popular acclaim, and it springs up and it makes a statement that goes something like this, Christ never claimed to being God. Christ never made such a claim to being God. You ever heard that? I've heard that a couple of times. Uh, a, a, A brand new scholarly development. Well, not really. It's an old heresy springing up with different garb and saying the same thing. Christ never claimed to be God. And if that were true, then it would certainly follow that Paul sure harbored a wrong notion about Christ, wouldn't it? According to verse 6, however, Christ's deity is not something that Paul interpreted and then applied to Christ. He sees it, rather, as something that comes from Christ himself. Christ himself thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Paul's not saying I don't think it's robbery for him to be equated with God. No, this is how he thought of himself. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The Jews in Christ's day were certainly aware. Of Christ claimed the deity. When Christ made the statement in John 10 and verse 30 that he and his Father were one, we read how the Jews took up stones to stone him. And the reason that they took up stones is made clear in verse 33 of John 10. We read the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. That certainly indicates to us, doesn't it, that Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the Jews understood his claim. Now there's something sadly ironic in the text that tells us Christ being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the irony is that the same kind of thinking characterizes fallen man. You remember the devil's luring temptation to Eve in the Garden of Eden? Ye shall be as gods, he said to her. And the proof of the Genesis account is readily seen by the way fallen man regards himself as God right up to this present hour. In a fallen and perverse way, it can be said that Fallen man thinks it not robbery to be equal with God. He may not come out and declare that he's a God, but such is his fallen nature that he thinks of himself as a God, and he thinks of himself as being the determiner of right and wrong, and he thinks of himself as being at the center of the universe, and has the attitude that everything should revolve around him. And one of the things that contributes to the world's strife today is we have so many completing demigods in the world. Each one thinking that he's in charge and that the world should revolve around him. One of the things that makes this fallen world such a dangerous place to live is in fact that there are so many God wannabes, if you will, that feel they ought to get their own way and everything should cater to them. How then does this statement about Christ pertain to our having the mind of Christ? Well, it certainly doesn't indicate that we, like Christ, should consider ourselves to be gods too. That was the very kind of mindset, you might argue, that Christ came to save us from. And you know, so much of salvation pertains to being saved from self, saved from wrong thinking and wrong attitudes and a misguided perspective about what we are. What that statement indicates to us, rather, is that like Christ, we too should think accurately about ourselves. This may be best expressed in Romans 12 and verse 3, where Paul writes, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. We're to think soberly about ourselves which means that we don't um, uh, become overborn in a phony humility, nor do we become uh, proud in our imaginations, but we have a sober estimate of ourselves. Christ saw himself as equal to God. Could it not follow that we see ourselves as, in a sense, equal to other men, equal to other men? image-bearers of God? This is sometimes something we don't care to admit, but we actually share a common humanity with all men. We're sometimes ashamed of that common humanity when we see how far men can plunge into sin and when we see how tyrannical and cruel men can be. But it's an undeniable fact of our being that we are the same as other men. And this equality transcends every nation and race and culture and age. Now, this is not to deny that there are certain legitimate authority structures among men. There are. Our shorter catechism, question 64, asked what is required in the fifth commandment, which is the command to honor thy father and thy mother. The answer, the fifth commandment, requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. So we recognize that there are places and relations. We're not denying that when we say there's an equality among men. It seems that some try to press the truth of the equality of men by denying these places and relations. I hate my boss. There should be no such thing as a boss. Isn't that a common way to think in the world? We are not of that mind. But having said that, we do recognize an equality among men and that we are all created in the image of God, and we have all fallen into sin. And to those that are saved by faith in Christ, there's also an equality among them. Each one is saved the same way. Each one has claim to the same promises. Each one has a perfect standing with God based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Each one is completely accepted in Christ. Now, you would think that it would be very easy and very natural for each one of us to think accurately about ourselves. But in actual practice, it can prove to be a daunting challenge. Like I said a moment ago, we tend to look at ourselves through rose-colored glasses. The story is told of a missionary who likely didn't have accurate knowledge of himself, listen to the account that this missionary shares. Upon returning home from a day of relief supply distribution, I joined my three-year-old daughter in the kitchen. She was drawing a picture of our family. I noticed what appeared to be me standing somewhat at a distance from the rest of the family Wearing what was clearly a frown. Is that Daddy? I asked. Yes, came the sheepish reply. Why am I frowning? She was asked. Daddy, you never smile, (laughs) was the return. That event proved to be a wake up call for that missionary. Had you asked him before that event whether or not he was chronically frustrated and angry, he probably wouldn't have admitted it. It seems that we are oftentimes reluctant to see ourselves as anything but happy and kind and caring individuals. And the fact that others don't see us that way only means in our minds that they just don't know us as well as we know ourselves. Or not. In such a case, we have not gained the mind of Christ. We've gained instead the mind of pride. And the need in our lives is to invite the Spirit of Christ to search our hearts and show us what we are and give us the grace to formulate our view of ourselves, at least in some measure, by the perception of others. I say only in some measure because if we are overly given to what others think we can in the end be ruled by the fear of man rather than the fear of God and we can also become puffed up in those instances when others heap flattery upon us. Like we don't know how to take criticism and we don't know how to take compliments either. Uh, We let both go to our heads and uh And provoke us to strife. The Spirit of God knows you well and can search your heart and can reveal to you what you truly are. So you should make the psalmist's prayer your own. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. From Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, a good prayer that we do well to utilize. Lord, search my heart and help me to be open to whatever you reveal to me. I, I, I want to see myself not as others see me, not even as I see myself. I want an accurate view of myself that aligns with how God sees me. Help me to have that, O Spirit of God, If you would gain the mind of Christ, therefore, you will, in a spirit of submission and honesty, invite the Spirit to assist you in recognizing accurately your strengths and your weaknesses, your sins and your virtues. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Such a mind will enable you to know yourself But would you think with me next of the truth that the mind of Christ will enable us to serve others? The mind of Christ will enable us to serve others. Again, note the words of verse 6 which pertain to Christ who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I really like the authorized version's translation of that verse. Most other English versions convey the idea that Christ did not consider his equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, as some versions translate it. There's a potential danger to that translation, misleading us to the sense of value that Christ would place on his own divinity, as if to suggest that his own divinity was no big deal, so to speak. We know that his divinity, in fact, is a very big deal. We know the triune God is the very essence of goodness and righteousness and love and holiness. These things are absolutes in the Godhead, and we can't begin to fathom the meaning of any of these things apart from God being God. God. God, you see, is the only being in the universe that can be, if I can use the phrase, righteously selfish. Now, it's wrong when you and I endeavor in our pride to promote ourselves or glorify ourselves. We become appalled, don't we? Especially during Political seasons like the one we've just gone through, when candidates try to put forward themselves as all knowing and all loving and infallible. We're appalled at their arrogance, but on the other hand, it's good and right and proper for God to promote His own glory. In promoting His glory, He promotes all that is good and right and holy listen to the way John Piper expresses what is called the self sufficiency of God. He writes From all eternity God had beheld the panorama of his own perfections in the face of his son and vice versa. All that he is, he sees reflected fully and perfectly in the countenance of his Son. And in this he rejoices with infinite joy. At first this sounds like vanity. It would be vanity if we humans found our deepest joy by looking in the mirror. We would be vain and conceited and smug and selfish if we were like God in this regard. But it's not wrong for God, because He is all of that, glorious and holy and loving and righteous. Now, I say all of this so we avoid the misimpression of thinking that Christ did not place the utmost value on his own divinity. It becomes an attack on the self-sufficiency to think otherwise. His own glory, you could say, was and is a thing to be grasped and something to be promoted and is promoted in your salvation. That's why I like the authorized version translation better that Christ being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And it's only when we ourselves begin to grasp in some measure the the infinite value of Christ's own glory that we can begin to appreciate his condescending service which was aimed at our salvation. When we strive to view him as highly as we possibly can, then we begin to appreciate the words of verses 7 and 8. But he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Keep in mind as you read those words of condescension, who who this pertains to. It pertains to a man who did not think it robbery to be equal with God, because he is equal with God. And you begin to see the contrast between the glory and his condescension for our salvation. You see then how the mind of Christ led him to condescending service and to sacrificial service. Listen to these words from the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield. This is from a sermon Warfield preached from this section of Philippians. He notes, It is difficult to set a limit to the self-sacrifice which the example of Christ calls upon us to be ready to undergo for the good of our brethren. It is comparatively easy to recognize that the ideal of the Christian life is self-sacrificing unselfishness and to allow that it is required of those that seek to enter into it to seek first the kingdom of God. But is it so easy to acknowledge even to ourselves that what is required of us is not some self-denial, but all self-sacrifice? Yet is it not to this that the example of Christ would lead us? Is it to be unto death itself? Christ died. Are we to endure wrongs? What wrongs did he not meekly bear? Are we to surrender our clear and recognized rights? Did Christ stand upon his unquestioned right of retaining his equality with God? Are we to endure unnatural evils, permit ourselves to be driven into inappropriate situations, unresistingly sustain injurious and unjust imputations and attacks? What more unnatural than that the God of the universe should become a servant in the world, ministering not to his Father only, but also to his creatures? Our Lord and Master washing our very feet? What more abhorrent than that God should die? There is no length to which Christ's self-sacrifice did not lead him. He who was in the form of God took took such thought for us that he made no account of himself himself into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter, I will die for men. He made no account of himself. If this is to be our example, what limit can we set to our self-sacrifice? I believe the key in these words by Warfield is the recognition that Christ's love for us begets our love for him as well as our love for others, no matter who they are or how they've treated us. It would be tempting to think that the standard that Christ's example sets before us looms before us as a very high mountain that is impossible to scale, or to think that our lives must somehow be reduced to some form of abject slavery. Let me quote Warfield again. Let us not, however, do the apostle the injustice of fancying that this is a morbid life to which he summons us, the self-sacrifice to which he exhorts us Unlimited as it is, going all lengths, is nevertheless not an unnatural life. After all, it issues not in the destruction of self, but only in the destruction of selfishness. Our Lord took no account of himself only because of the value of the souls of men pressed upon his heart. And following him, we are not to consider our own things, but those of others, just because everything earthly that concerns us is as nothing compared with their eternal welfare. Oh, do you begin to see then how gaining the mind of Christ empowers us? Do you begin to see how when this mind is gained the insurmountable challenge of looking every man not on his own things but also on the things of others can be met? In this power we can overcome strife and vainglory In this power, we can gain the right kind of humble spirit. In this power, we can place the value we should on the souls of men. So the mind of Christ enables us to think accurately with regard to ourselves, and the mind of Christ enables us to enter condescendingly into sacrificial service. I wonder this morning... Is it the mind of Christ that rules your life? I think we could make a connection between our text this morning and the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which was which is given unto us. I don't think you can have the mind of Christ without having the love of God shed abroad in your hearts. It was obviously such love that was shed abroad in Christ's heart when he veiled his glory and condescended to come into this world. It was that same love that compelled him to take upon himself the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of men. It was this love that not merely enabled him, but compelled him to be obedient to his Father, obedient even unto death, and obedient not just to any death, but to a cruel and agonizing death upon Calvary's cross. Oh, how I want this mind to be in me. Oh, how we must have such a mind and such a heart as the mind and heart of Christ. Do you not sense that apart from the mind of Christ, you can do nothing, but with the mind of Christ, you can do all things? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If Paul is calling Christians to have such a mind, then it follows that such a mind is available to us. It can be yours, and it should be yours. Another translation of the verse perhaps captures how available and near at hand this mind is to us when it reads this way, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. From the ESV. And doesn't that bring the matter very near to you. This mind is not something you have to scale the heights to attain or plumb the great depths to reach. It's near at hand. Indeed, it belongs to you already in Christ. And if that's the case, then you may conclude that when Paul says, let this mind be in you, he's simply calling on you to allow that which you already possess to be the mind that governs your life and your service to God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May we find the grace we need to heed such an exhortation so that we may indeed have the same love, be of one accord and of one mind, overcome strife and vain glory, and in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than ourselves. Oh, may God grant us such a mind or such an attitude as the mind of Christ. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bring this meeting to a close today, we thank Thee for how rich Thy Word is in terms of what it teaches us about Christ. And we thank Thee, Lord, for how practical Thy Word is. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou wilt help us to take it upon ourselves to have the mind of Christ. We need it, O oh Lord, we need it especially when we live in a culture characterized by strife and vainglory. We need it, O Lord, when we are constantly tempted to our own self-interests. O Lord, we look to Thee to grant us the needed grace to think accurately about ourselves. And may the example of Christ Prompt us, O Lord, compel us to serve others the way we should. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.